thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your Cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Welcome to Naked Reflections, brought to you from the Wolf Institute. I'm Ed Kessler, and each week I'll be taking an in-depth look at the stories reported by our friends over at the Naked Scientists. What does the latest scientific stuff mean for the rest of us? Stay with us and find out. Playing God or ridding the world of disease, creating a super race or laying bare our deepest human nature, nature or nurture for that matter. Many discussions of genetics are framed with melodramatic cliches that do little to illuminate. Meanwhile, best-selling books like The Selfish Gene have become a sort of clarion call for a, well, what I would think is a kind of complacent atheism, but doubtless I'll be challenged on that. Developments in our understanding of genetics have profound implications for our self-understanding and self-determining medically, ethically, legally, and so on. Now, as a person of faith, I too have had to think about quite seriously what's going on with genetics. Are we playing with genetics? But genetic experimentation predates our modern understanding of genetics. And here's Professor James Serple speaking on the Naked Scientist podcast. In the 1850s, Victorians started to focus on dogs as a kind of a hobby breeding species. You've got the creation of something called the dog fancy. Prior to the 1850s, there were lots of different breeds or more correctly land races of dogs out there. People took these local varieties and then, as it were, genetically isolated them from the rest of the dog population and started breeding like to like. They created stud books so that they knew exactly who had been bred to whom. That in itself creates problems because you've got such a limited pool of genes to draw upon in the first place and you also get things like um, inbreeding depression occurring and founder effects and genetic drift and so on. With me to discuss the question of genes and our manipulation of them are Dr. Dennis Alexander, Emeritus Director of the Faraday Institute and author of the forthcoming book, Are We Slaves to Our Genes? Dr. Julian Hubbard, Fellow of Jesus College Cambridge and Director of the College's Intellectual Forum, and Dr. Kitty Alone, researcher here at the Wolf Institute. Well, welcome all. 
Dennis, can you say something about the sort of the study of genetics just to kick us off? Well, we really have to go back to Gregor Mendel way back in the middle part of the 19th century, uh, who didn't study genes because the word wasn't really yet invented. So, but he certainly discovered uh, the inheritance uh, using peas and other uh, things like that, other plants like that, to work out that there are particles. Somehow there are particles that are inherited by peas that determine their characteristics, whether they're wrinkled or smooth and all that sort of thing. Um, but his work was actually published in a very obscure uh, German uh, publication that most people didn't read very much. And it was then rediscovered. Uh, so back in the early, sort of 1902, 1903, is really we get the rediscovery of genetics as it then came to be called. And we get people uh, repeating Mendel's work using different species and so forth. And then you get work on rats starting up and so on. And that led actually to an era of uh, quite strong genetic determinism in the early part of the 20th century. And that carried on for quite a while. Um, and so, but nobody really knew what a gene was. You know, they knew there was a gene, there was a particle, something was inherited. First of all, people thought it was proteins, actually, you know, because proteins have a lot of information in them. Uh, but that gradually faded away. Then it was demonstrated to be DNA. Um, and then finally, we get the double helix great discovery, Watson and Crick, in 1953, published in a one-page article in Nature, <laughs> one of the shortest papers in Nature you can get, but wow, so profound, so profound, and has changed the whole pattern, the whole history of genetics since then. Were, were people nervous in terms of the wider public? Because today there is public unease about this whole question of the study of genetics and modification. Was there unease in that early period, the late 19th, early 20th centuries? In the early part of the 20th century, yes. Um, well, the thing was that determinism was really ridiculous. And so people actually thought there was a gene for everything, you know, a gene for intelligence and a gene for race and a gene for this, that and the other. And that actually led to quite a big reaction. Uh, again, the pendulum swung. So the pendulum has been swinging during the course of the 20th century. Early part of the 20th century, strong determinism. Uh, then you get a strong behavioral uh, kind of swing against it, if you like, the environmental emphasis became much greater. And then after the Second World War, with, of course, the horrendous use of eugenics and so forth in the Second World War and the Nazi Germany and so forth, all that well-known history, there was a very big reaction against uh, even using twins or something uh, for studies that was right out of the court, you know, for a couple of decades and really just picked up uh, from, I would say, the 60s onwards. It began to pick up again and then you get the birth of molecular biology, what we call that now called molecular biology, the use of genetics um, to understand the genetic code and how it's translated into protein structures, all that kind of thing. Kitty, can you relate to the sense of unease um, about the study of genetics? Um, yes. I mean, from a psychological perspective, it is almost inevitable, really. So we have many sort of biases in our cognition that almost predict this response to genetic modification. So, for example, there's a lot of work done on something called psychological essentialism, which is this sort of idea or this fixed belief that everything has an invisible yet immutable, unchangeable essence, if you like. So people reason about DNA as being the essence of an organism, and to sort of manipulate that or modify that is sort of perceived as being quite freakish or monstrous. So there is this intuitive, almost sort of, it's almost like the, the, the logical outcome, really, of the way that people reason about the unchangeability of 
the essence or the DNA of an organism that gives people this idea that there's something freakish or monstrous about it, that it is something unnatural. It doesn't surprise me that there is this huge sort of fear of, of genetic manipulation. Even the word manipulation, I think, sort of is a loaded term. Julian. So I think there's a difference between the study of genetics and how people respond to that, which I think is generally positive, interested, you know, people talk about, you know, eye colour, hair colour, all sorts of things. It's, it's seen as a more interesting, fun thing. And genetic modification. I think there is a difference between modification, manipulation and understanding how it works. And my own work was on understanding how actually non-double helix DNA makes a difference. And so, you know, it's quite fun. I don't think it led to a sense of unease or certainly... Never had that as a response. But as you say, it's, it, it's the change where people are a bit uncertain about what that might all mean. Um, and it's funny in some ways because we've been doing it for a very long time. Um, most crops were unrecognisable in their original form. Farm animals have been bred to be extremely different. You know, and that's happened over tens of thousands of years. Um, and it's a fascinating thing that when we didn't know what we were doing people were more relaxed about it. And you don't get that same response to crop breeding, for example. Once we know what we're doing, people see it in a very, very different light. Isn't it because it's affecting us? I mean, it's one thing to uh, modify crops, modify maybe animals. But once you start dealing with human beings, that's the fear because it's very close to home. Uh, absolutely. And, and there is a generally accepted moratorium on doing uh, genetic modification on nuclear DNA in humans. Um, there's, I think, only one person who's tried it, a Chinese uh, academic, who's now been jailed for it. I mean, it was widely condemned around the world as something that should not be done. I think there are good reasons because we're still a long way away from really understanding exactly how everything genetic works. There, there are some things which we understand pretty well, and there's some quite deterministic mutations. If you have this mutation here, you will get this uh, condition, and that's one of it. But there's lots of other areas where we don't know. We used to talk about junk DNA, and most of the human genome used to be described as junk. And it turns out junk in this sense, a technical term which means very important stuff that we don't understand yet. Some of it may well be junk, but some of it, what, the only thing we know is that it absolutely matters. Yes, I, I just want to pick up, in fact, on the case you mentioned, which is, again, only a single one happened in the world, where Dr. He Yangqui, the Chinese uh, scientist you mentioned from the University of Shenzhen in southern China, um, quite unknown to the rest of the world, although some people did know, actually, as I happen to know, but um, what he was trying to do, in fact, it was quite an interesting example because what he was trying to do is to remove uh, from a family where the parents had, or at least one of the parents had HIV, was HIV positive. So his idea was to remove a gene out of their children by artificial means in the lab, um, which would enable the offspring, therefore, to be resistant to infection by the HIV virus. And you think, oh, that sounds quite good, really. But, of course... What he missed was a lot of things. One was he didn't have proper ethical approval, I think, as far as we know. Um, secondly, um, the problem was that we don't really know if you lack that particular gene which encodes a particular protein, you know, what other effects it might have on people. And again, that's germline. That's in the actual uh, sex cells that we passed on to you know, succeeding generations. So what effect will they have? What, and what choice do they have, the other generations, about lacking these genes and so on? So it raises huge ethical... You know, but where's the line, Dennis? There must be... Yeah. There must be we, we know there's huge investment in, in the medical 
field and in terms of uh, genetics and modification to uh, uh, deal with disease? I mean, where is the line? What's acceptable and what's not acceptable in terms of genetic modification? I think most people would make a clear distinction as much as they can between healing and enhancement. Now, there is a fuzzy boundary, as we all know, between those two. But I think it's still a useful distinction because most people would say what I just mentioned, the uh, her, uh, Yang Kui, what he was doing was a form of enhancement because he was trying to enhance those individuals so they would be more resistant to infection with HIV virus. So that's a, a clearly a form of enhancement. I would say it's not healing anybody. Whereas most of the uses of genetic engineering at the moment for healing are very very encouraging, actually, for the first time, you know, in the past five years, there have been some really interesting and encouraging examples of healing individuals of their genetic disease through genetic engineering and and through gene modification. But that's not passed on to their succeeding Mm -hmm. generations. That is the key thing, I think. So I think that is a key distinction. I think we need to make that distinction. I agree. And and there is a big ethical difference between an adult consenting to do something which affects them and only them and somebody where the adults may or may not have understood what was happening, affecting their descendants and their descendants' descendants. There is a, there is a big difference there. There's also the interesting case um, that I was quite involved in when I was a, a member of parliament in, of mitochondrial replacement therapy. So you have DNA in the nucleus, and that, that's where most of the DNA is that, 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 that does pretty much everything. But there are also some DNA in mitochondria, which are the sort of power engines of the cell. And this was a, uh, causes some really nasty conditions. So they're inherited from the mother. Um, and if you have defects there, there's huge pain often. I mean, they're very, very serious conditions. And there's a technique which had been developed um, that allows you to take the nucleus out of a cell which, which has problems and put it into another cell which doesn't have a nucleus. And so replace the mitochondria, or replace the rest of the cell, and so fix and heal uh, those. And it was a fascinating debate. And... Um, one reason I found it interesting uh, to see how it was discussed was because it showed that I think politicians are not very good at understanding the difference between what is scientifically possible and what is ethically good and moral. So there is a debate about whether you should do this, and it's a perfectly legitimate, it's a good moral, philosophical discussion. The debate itself had two... All the people who opposed, almost all the people who opposed it, were Catholic or Evangelical, um, who I presume had the moral position this was just simply something you shouldn't do. Now, I don't agree, but it's a perfectly legitimate moral view. Um, but the case that was made was a not very good set of scientific arguments. We shouldn't do this till we can prove that it's completely safe, and it's very hard to prove safety until you, you try it. Whereas the argument on the other side for a lot of people also wasn't the moral arguments. It was also not very good scientific arguments. And when MPs came to vote, I was helping to guide them the way I I wanted. But a lot of people said, which way for science? And I thought that was a real problem, because science tells you, you can do this, you cannot do this. It doesn't tell you whether you should or should not. And we didn't have a proper moral ethical debate. Can I just pick up on that, actually? It's a very interesting debate. I I speak now as a Christian. I'm very enthusiastic about that particular technology. And I I do think, actually, it's hard to 
sort of split religious communities down the middle, you know, on these things, because I think, uh, you know, put one community all against it and one community all for it or something. I think life is so much more complex than that. And I think that's where the discussion in this country is actually quite distinct from the discussion in America, mm-hmm. where I think you do get these sort of packages. Oh, well, if you're a Republican, you, you have to do this, that and the other. And, you know, this sort of thing, whereas I think it's slightly more complex in this country. So I, I speak very much as a Christian, uh, very enthusiastic about genetic technology uh, with boundaries, of course. Uh, and I just felt the language in that particular discussion would have been helped greatly if we had spoken much more about uh, DNA donation, mm. if it had been mitochondrial donation. So if, you have, <laughs> so if you have a transplant, you know, somebody gives you a kidney, somebody gives you a heart, isn't that wonderful? Well, if somebody gives you their, you know, their mitochondrial DNA, which is healthy DNA, isn't that wonderful? So I, I just thought the language game was interesting there, actually. Mm. So really what we're talking about is, is as much the implications sort of the, the ethical implications of where we are and, and, and the limitations of that. And I think what I'm hearing you say is that the limitations are about the individual. It's okay if the individual um, accepts this, this change and it, it's limited to that person rather than passed down the generations. Is, is that what we're saying? I mean, my, uh, my big concern about this is not an ethical one once we get a lot further, and it's not a technical one. It's a health equality one. Um, there's a great short story just recently by Chichin Liu um, exploring this idea very nicely. But if we have techniques which are very expensive and means that some families can have diseases taken out or longevity enhanced or whatever benefits there may be, will we end up with the 1% not just having more income and not just having more wealth, but also having huge genetic advantages, longevity advantages, which will then compound it. Are we leading not to two different species, but to a massively entrenched advantage for one small set? That, that terrifies me. Kitty. So there's a couple of things that came up um, from what Julian and Dennis were saying. So first of all, it's the idea of literacy. So I think it's fair to say that um, the lay understanding, and by th- I'm including myself very much in the lay understanding of genetics, is pretty limited. I mean, I've just about heard about, you know, Mendel's peas, and that's really like the limit of my genetic knowledge. But the problem is, when issues surrounding genetic modification or DNA manipulation or any of the, the topics that you've talked on, when it's not presented in a reliable or Um, educated way, people fall back onto intuitive reasoning to think about these things. So there was a wonderful study that they did in the US, for example. And um, so of all the people that they surveyed, more than a half did not reject the idea that tomatoes, which had undergone genetic engineering by the insertion of fish DNA, would taste like fish. So it's this idea that the idea, the insertion of fish DNA somehow sort of introduces some fishy essence. But it's, I mean, that's what you're up against. Unless the media, I think, presents it in a much more palatable way, then people will rely on these sort of cognitive biases that make them think of it as something perverse, something disgusting or or freakish. Um, and I think also the other interesting thing that came up was this idea of religion. And I think the word that comes to my mind is um, apotheosis, this idea of you are playing the role of God. You should not interfere in something that has sort of the cosmic course of life. There is a predestined plan and you should not manipulate this or get involved in it because you're infringing on the work of a supernatural deity. Um, But I don't think it is just – I don't think it's fair to sort of – level it just at the religious community and say oh well you know it's people of faith that are holding back this this progress that we're making as you were saying Dennis because actually um 
unease surrounding genetically modified crops, for example, is just as pertinent as it is in the secular community as it is in the religious community. So I don't think it's fair to sort of say that this is just a problem that's being created. I I don't think it's fair to say that religion, in any sense, is holding back the field, if you like. You're listening to Naked Reflections, and my guests this week are Dennis Alexander, Julian Hubbard, and Kitty alone. Kitty. Even though there is sort of an intuitive mistrust, if you like, of this of DNA and genes and all the rest of it. Um, I've noticed recently that there is this trend for sort of like the mass commercialization of mm. DNA. So around Christmas, you, I'd log onto my Facebook page and it would just be endless, endless adverts for sort of discover your DNA, discover yeah. your ancestry wow. by these DNA methods. And it's becoming so sort of, it's sort of presented in a very pedestrian way, if you like. It's like, well, you just it's, do is that, a is swab, that healthy? send it off. Well, I don't think it is because I think, again, what Dennis was saying about complex systems, I think it sort of implies that, oh, it's really easy. You just take a mouth swab, send it off to a lab, and then they can tell you what percentage Caucasian you are. I think it's right because DNA is now being used as a sales technique. So there's a company I'm aware of that's essentially saying you should eat less salt, better eat healthier. But they phrase it as we do a DNA test, which will then predict which foods you should and shouldn't eat. And they certainly believe that putting that have the DNA test bit first, increase the sales, even though I have to say I'm, I'm pretty confident that the advice is almost identical for everybody. Dennis, um, you said a little earlier that, uh, you know, you're, you're a Christian um, and you're a scientist. Um, what, what's your, your response to this question of the role of religion and genetics? It's very complex. Uh, you know, I, I can't give a really simple answer, but I can tell you my own experience because um, I've written a fair bit in this area about the relationship between science and religion and in the context of genetics as well. Uh, what I find is that I get, um, you get attacked by everybody. That's quite fun, you know. So, <laughs> I, I mean, there's a book by Michael Crichton, actually, which I hadn't read, but where I am quoted in one of his characters as quoting a whole chunk from me as a Christian geneticist um, and being rather blamed, you know, for then all kinds of horrible things happen, obviously, with the use of genes. It's a Michael Crichton novel, okay? You know, he's the author of Jurassic Park, in case you don't remember, the late Michael. So, um, and, and, you know, so I, I just thought it was rather amusing, actually. Here I am as a, sorry, as a Christian character in his book being blamed for Jurassic Park. It was somewhat, rather strange. Anyway, so you do get these quite complex discussions going on. I have to say, I think um, within the Christian community, as far as I know it, amongst the scientists, certainly, I know a lot of geneticists within the Christian community, um, as a matter of fact. And I think they, you know, they, they do have real ethical concerns, obviously, about the they want to do things properly. Uh, but I, I'm sort of glad they're there. And um, But isn't there a tension between being a Darwinist, being a biologist, and being a Christian, um, or any person of faith who believes in an interventionist God? So I love Charles Darwin. He's one of my great heroes. Um, Michael Faraday's top of the list, but Darwin is right up there. I have a lovely picture of Darwin above my bed. Okay, so that's where I'm coming from. And I'm an enthusiast for evolution and biology, and I always have been and never seen any problem in terms of evolution and religion, all that sort of thing. Uh, but it's the interventionism. It's the intervention, yes. Dennis, that I want to sort of pick up on, because as a person of faith myself, I'm Jewish, as you know. Yes. Um, and, um, you know, in, in, in the Jewish tradition, the Christian and the Muslim, in most faith, faith traditions, there is an aspect where God intervenes. 
I think that we have to come back to that wonderful theological essay, Genesis chapter 1. Again, the whole of humankind is made in God's image. And I think we now have a better grasp, really, on what that entails. And it means the handing over responsibilities to care for the earth and to look after people and to be carers and not destroyers. And that theme, of course, is a, is a constant theme right throughout um, what we call the Old Testament and so forth. So, uh, so I, I just think um, if that responsibility is taken... Uh, really carefully and ethically, then we are always intervening in the world all the time, aren't we, as humankind? And I think God, I would see, is the creator of everything, the whole shebang, everything that exists. He is the constant creator, upholding, sustaining the whole of the created order, which is what makes science possible, because we have regularity, we have reproducibility. And that is, if you go back to the roots of modern science, of course, you see it's believers who started the whole show. I mean, if we go back to the early modern period. Julian, yeah. as um, a patron of Humanist UK, um, I mean, how would you respond to what Dennis has said? Um, so, I mean, obviously we, we have different premises, um, but I don't have a problem with people who say there are things we have clear evidence for and we accept that and work out how to fit other beliefs with the stuff that we know must be true. I, I don't agree with your conclusions, but I don't have a logical problem with them. Um, what I do find, and I have come across people, and I would never tarnish all Christians with this brush, is people who say, I know from the Bible what must be true, therefore these experiments must be false, this thing must not be happening. And that's not I'm suggesting in any way you would articulate. I do find that deeply frustrating. Um, I spent some time in Spain um, with uh, some people from Opus Dei, as I later found out, who are very much of that view, that if an experiment says something which doesn't seem to fit with what is in the Bible, the experiments must be wrong, false, set up misleadingly. I, I have a problem with that. Uh, the, the problem of literalism um, is one that uh, pervades not just the field of religion and belief, of course, but also science and and uh, and, and others as well. Oh, absolutely. And, and there are also people who have sort of almost too much faith in science, you know, that um, there's this idea that one study was done and therefore this proves things. And actually there are real problems about how people understand how science develops and learns. And one of the flip sides is I, I, I've then seen people say, ah, but science used to think this, then it found that this was wrong, therefore we should believe all of science is completely wrong. You know, we used to think Newton was quite good, then Einstein said he was wrong. It's like, well, he didn't quite say he was wrong. He built on what we had already. So I think there are real problems about, um, about understanding what actually goes on with, with philosophy, belief, faith, whatever, and also about science and the scientific method. It's not as simple as Popper suggested, it's not the version that is taught in schools of how you go about learning. I think I, I think you're completely right. Science is not simple, um, but I'm so glad that Dennis brought up um, a, Dennis, a geneticist, brought up Jurassic Park because I was going to mention. <laughs> and I thought, they get a psychologist on the show, and all she can manage is, you know, oh, Jurassic Park. But what I think Jurassic Park shows is that people really don't understand the process of science, and it makes for a great story to have, you know, these this genetic manipulation that creates these monsters. I mean, it's something that Mary Shelley exploited to fantastic effect in Frankenstein. And it's clearly something that people are really intrigued by or attracted to, this notion of the, the devilish scientist who plays God and who creates a monster. But I think it really, at the heart of that is um, what Julian mentioned, this idea that 
people don't understand the process of science because it's counterintuitive. It's counterintuitive to how our cognition evolved. And a better understanding of the process of science, of the paradigms of science, I think, would be helpful for public discourse, um, perhaps not so much for Hollywood, but um, definitely for public discourse surrounding science. Could I just pick up also, I think, while we're talking about <clears throat> communication and genetics, I think the, the language of nature and nurture that was picked up earlier on is not very helpful. Now, that was invented by Francis Galton in way back in the Victorian times, first cousin of Charles Darwin. And the trouble is, coming back to your point about DNA essence, I think the trouble is that gives you the idea there's some sort of struggle going on between nature on one side and nurture over here. Uh, and all you can talk about genes and environment, that can also be dangerous in that way. And, of course, the reality is that if you look at developmental biology, how we all develop and so forth, then everything's woven together in this very complex kind of system. Mm. It's a complex system. Mm. And the trouble is communicating complex system is really difficult. It's very, difficult. <laughs> exactly. very hard. Yeah. And so people go back to nature and nurture. Yeah, and I can understand it's that. It's binary. It's very easy for people. Yeah. It's a sort of yes. the appeal to nature argument that, well, um, anything, nature is good, therefore anything that is natural is good. So anything that is non-natural is bad. Um, and something non-natural would be, for example, lay thinking would be you know genetic modification but of course that doesn't logically follow that anything that natural is anything natural is good i mean some of the most poisonous elements in nature are natural if you want to sort of think of it in those terms so i think you're right that this um either has to be nature or nurture is very misleading and it's really quite i mean i I feel in some sense that a bit tired that we're still having to make this just you know that Mm. Isn't there also the problem of the speed? Everything seems to be happening more quickly in terms of the sort of, not just communication, but in terms of the progress and and, and discussions that that people feel nervous about the speed of change. Is that also relevant here? Absolutely. And in terms of our understanding of genomics, for example, it has shot on massively. Um, You know, I was an undergraduate not that long ago, and we didn't have a good picture of much of this. There were, we had bits of of, of the genome, whereas now we have the genomes of however many thousand things, the cost of a human genome sequence, thanks to to actually partly my PhD supervisor, who's one of the founders of of Selexis, now Illumina, it's now about $100. And I think also the modern science in that sense is helping us a little bit coming back to nature and nurture, because now from all the genomic sequencing and so forth that we can do so easily, um, it's become very clear that some of the some of the diseases, some of the mental illnesses, some of the other common things, cardiovascular disease, whatever it might be, um, there are multiple, there are hundreds, there are thousands of genetic variants involved. Therefore, you can't really have nature nurture, can you? Because what you've got is a complex system, where hundreds and hundreds of genetic variants contributing to a very complex developmental system where you may have something that happens or it may not. So the picture is changing very radically, I think. Well, I hope we brought some light to the changing picture, but I have to uh, uh, bring this podcast to a close. So thanks to my guests, Dennis Alexander, Julian Hubbard and Kitty alone. And thanks to you for listening. If you'd like to get in touch with any comments, thoughts, feedback or reflections of your own, you can email reflections at nakedscientist.com. In the meantime, you can find more episodes of Naked Reflections and subscribe to the Naked Reflections podcast at nakedscientist.com slash reflections. Do join us next time. Thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. 
the nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK.